Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today I am pleased to welcome my friend, DJ Abilities from Rhymesayers Entertainment. I have known him for 11 or 12 years at this point, but this is the most I've ever just got to sit down and pick his brain about the creative process. And so we sat down over two days talking about all of the ENA records, rest in peace to Idea, and his rebirth as a solo artist. This is DJ Abilities. Microphone check, one, two, what is this? The five foot assassin with the roughneck business. <laughs> there you go. Correct. I just feel like that was a jeopardy. Yeah, I was like, man, am I being tested? <laughs> I should answer. No, no, but I'm glad you did. I was trying to think of when I even saw you last. It must have been like level up like two or three years ago. Yeah, I think you're right. Now we know we don't have a ton of time, so I want to go through, I mean, this amazing career as fast as I can. With Phonograph Phoenix, to me, the thing to talk about here is really your evolution as a producer. I'm curious, was it first turntablism or was it production that made you want to start making music? I was a DJ first. Yeah? yeah. I mean, was there somebody that inspired you and made you think like, wow, I really want to really want to try that. DJ Excalibur. Really? He's an OG Minnesota DJ. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember, actually, mutual friend of ours, Carnage. Yeah. It was Carnage's DJ. I saw them both perform at First Avenue. I remember Carnage rapping about Yoda, and I thought <laughs> that that was really cool. And Excalibur was scratching, I believe, like the car screeching away noise off a DJ Rectangle album, I believe. And I remember being like, oh. And that's when I was like, at least one specific moment. You know, there's yeah. no like all-encompassing moment. But that one is definitely one that I remember where I was like, oh, I want to scratch more. Yeah. Because it really resonated with me. So, yeah, I would say that. Is it right that within two years, you were already at the DMC finals nationally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started when I was 17, and when I was 19, I was at the finals, yeah. Was there a feeling right away that was just like, oh, I understand how this works? Like, did it Yeah, just came it, really it, quick? It was. Yeah, because I think one of the reasons is, so when I was really young, I was fully ambidextrous. Oh. And then as I grew older, they split. So, like, I draw and I write with my left hand but I play sports, like throw balls, etc. My stronger arm is my right arm, and my creative arm is my left arm, if you will. So when I sat down on turntables, the fader is a very like kind of mathematic thing. Yeah. And then the record is very, it's more artistic, like a, like a paintbrush. So when I sat down on turntables, it was like, oh, my hands already do these things to a degree. So it, it was supernatural to me. And I really liked it, too, because I had tried all elements of hip-hop because I really, I love hip-hop. Yeah. But that's the one that I enjoyed the most. And then I had the most aptitude, too, as well. So it, it wound up working out. Yeah, that's cool that you just kind of had the natural skill set for that because, you know, I've played music my whole life. And I remember a few years ago, I thought, you know, I'm going to try and just do a couple of basic scratches on my record, you know. And I was like, <laughs> sure, this sure. is backwards, you know, <laughs> like. It it's so <laughs> it's like, really weird. You know, if you're used to like you hit the drum, you strum the guitar, and then you release the well, record, it's like you're, whoa. You're, you're hitting on one of the most gnarly elements of DJ. So there's a couple of things with DJ that makes it with scratching, I should say, in particular, yeah. that makes it so abstract. Which is one, it goes backwards. Yeah. Right. So other music doesn't go backwards and forward. So that in of itself is is really radical. Two, the smallest motions make the biggest noise. Like, if I go this to this, the sound that comes out of the speakers is going to be drastically different as opposed to if you hit the snare this hard or that hard. Yeah. It's just going to sound like a louder snare. Whereas when you're doing it with turntables, you can dramatically alter it. So, therefore, it requires really, really precise control. And then the other thing, the third thing that's super gnarly about scratching, which is like... It's a deep one, is exactly what you are talking about previous, is every other instrument you need to make the motion to make the noise, right? And yeah. so for turntablism, 
it's always on. The key is always on. The horn is always playing because the turntable is already doing it for you. And that's where the concept of flaring comes in because what, what transforming is, is it's like if it was drumming because you're going dot, 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 and you're making that sound, dot, 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 dot. Yeah. But what flaring is, is the sound is on and you actually are playing negative space. So you're taking away sound as opposed to adding sound because you have the infinite sound on the turntable. And that's why turn and scratching gets really fast. Yeah. Because once you learn how to do that, like we're one step ahead of every other instrument because we don't have to initiate the sound, so to speak. And then you get in position in situations where you're tearing the record and then you're cutting those tears in half mm-hmm. and then it just starts multiplying and it gets, that's when it's like, you know, like crazy fast. So it's cool. It's super gnarly. Like I would consider myself more of a producer at this point in my life. Like mm-hmm. that's more interesting to me, but I still love scratching and it's still fascinating to me. It's still one of my favorite instruments. Yeah. It's just an instrument like a guitar or drums are at this point. Now it's more about all of them and making them all work together. Absolutely. I've told people for years, you know, like my guitar is a literal musical instrument. It's just a device to get the sound out of my head, you know, like. It's just like a color. It's like blue isn't better than red, isn't better than orange, isn't better than green. It's just when you're making your painting, what is the right color for what you're trying to express? Totally. And instruments are the exact same way. Yeah. Now, when you and Mike formed Sixth Sense, obviously he was also a prodigy in his way. Was there some kind of sense that when you were starting, like, dude, if you and me combine forces, like, this could be something special? I think so. I don't think we looked at it in terms of, like, prodigies you know what i mean but i I definitely think in hindsight i look at mikey 100 percent as a prodigy yeah i'm not gonna look at myself in that way because that's just bizarre but well i can say it (laughs) i well i appreciate it but i will say that it was a like this is a good team you know what i'm saying like we were excited to work together yeah because i think there was a mutual respect of skill so yeah I, i definitely think that we felt good about the group we could do some damage. As Sixth Sense is becoming idea and abilities, I mean, was there, I guess, how did you get reactions from the rest of the scene or from those early tours? I mean, deep philosophy, technical chops, I mean, all kinds of stuff that's really, really unique. Or was it more of a process before you guys kind of landed at your sound? I think one of the reasons Mike and I worked well together is because we both were about advancing ourselves and we both were open to doing it in many different ways. Like one of the things I really liked about working with Mike is I could create any type of beat. I never felt like, Oh, I got to make this. I never felt limited working with him. So when I sat down to produce, it was like, I literally could just make anything that I want because I knew he could do something to it. You You know what I mean? Like he has the technical skill, to rap to any BPM of beat or any type of beat. And he had the mental like depth to have any type of emotion or content. Yeah. So you're literally like the, the happiest of things, the saddest of things from 60 BPM to 135 BPM, <laughs> you know, like anything. One thing that I wish that him and I would have done, which I'm exploring now is making songs in different time signatures. Yeah. That's one thing I wish I could have done with him because because he would have been able to do it. And that's like one of the only things I feel like we didn't get to explore that would have been rad. Yeah, I think maybe the last thing that came out from him was that sadistic song. And I want to say that was in 6-8. I think. That's right. I remember that because I remember them talking about that. Yeah. being in an odd time signature. I wish I would have done it with Mike. I just, I know he would have killed it. Oh, yeah, yeah, you guys could have pushed that for sure. And speaking of your production being so varied, when I listened to Firstborn, I always felt like because what he's doing is so both thematically and lyrically dense, like there's a lot of space in the music on that record. And I mm-hmm. wondered if that was 
intentional that it was so stripped down? Like, was that a consideration for some of the stuff that he was bringing to the table, or was that just the style you were on at that moment? We were super young. Yeah. So, like, it's simple because that's how I could make beats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I wasn't advanced enough. Like, if you start playing, you know, you play the guitar. When you first start playing guitar, you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. You're, it's going to be simpler. So there was really no... At least I can't, you know, if we're talking, this is 20 plus years ago, so For I don't sure. yeah. truly remember. But if I was going to make a calculated guess, I know that I was trying to make dope stuff. So I think that's yeah. probably simpler more just because that's all I could do. Yeah. But I also think that on some level, whether consciously or subconsciously, I knew that Mike was super wordy and liked to use a lot of techniques and things. So if it started getting too busy inherently that was going to detract yeah so it's probably a combination of my aptitude as a producer and my understanding of him needing space because one thing that him and i always were in conjunction with is that we always understood that it was a collaboration yeah and we never had issues with like i want to do it this way i want to do it this way like ah like we never had that if one of us didn't like something it was like it's gone. We never argued over any type of stuff musically. We both had to appreciate it. Perfect example would be, I'll give you two different examples, and they're both by the throat because it's probably the most recent thing. Yeah. This story actually had a full chorus of him rapping. Really? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I don't like it. We, I think it sounds better instrumental. Yeah. And it was like, boom. And then by the throat actually had a scratch piece in it, and it didn't work. And huh. it's just like, get rid of it. So there wasn't an ego thing involved. It was just like, what is the best that we can do? And I think it's because we both trusted one another that if one of us saw a fault in it, yeah. then it was probably right. And the other one of us just didn't realize it yet. <laughs> yeah. Like, if we don't so. fix this now, we're going to be kicking ourselves in six months once it's out. Yeah, exactly. And so we both understood that if one of us felt off about it, we were probably right. Yeah. That was one of the best things about working with him is that it was, it felt very even. We had the same trajectory. We we're on the same goal. There was no power struggles in regards to the creating the music, which, which is pretty freaking cool when you think about it, because it's a rare thing. I think a lot of bands aren't like that, you yeah. know, where it is a lot of like, let's do it this way. Let's do it that way. And I don't know, but I feel like it is that way. And I, and I'm grateful that, my band wasn't like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had one band ever where everyone contributed equally, and pretty much the rest of the time, it's everyone looking at me going, all right, what do we do? <laughs> you know, so, sure. I mean... Which could be fun in its own way. For sure, know, for as sure. Long, but As long as you're the guy, like, directing the shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that kind of dynamic can really, you know, mess with people's sense of belonging and their sense of control and so you know like you said that equal partnership is just such a a magic thing for the creative process you know um now i don't want to spend too much time on on the old stuff the last thing about firstborn coming off of dmc blaze battle you guys building this reputation did you feel like there were expectations to deliver more of that style that you didn't really do much until the ENA record that was more in your face, more. Yeah, I, not to cut you off, but I feel like I hear where you're going. I think in our first record, we just kind of did what we wanted to do, um, and it's the songs that we had had. And I think the first Born record is very Minnesota winter like. It's very, very inside and cerebral, and like I think that the ENA record actually is a response to some degree to people being like, where's the battle rap? Where's that kind of stuff? Yeah. And, you know, at that point, what are, we're still 20, 22 or something, or still young people. So we're, we're, I think we were kind of swayed to do some more of that stuff. Plus, we did like doing that stuff. So oh, it yeah. wasn't like this big reach. You know, it was like, well, let's do some more battle shit. And so I guess that's why that is like that. That's why it progressed that way. It wasn't really... Firstborn being the way that it was wasn't necessarily a conscious thing. Although, Mikey does talk about it on the before and after song with Blueprint. Where uh -huh. He's like, I don't need to rap about battling, I do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's pretty tough in my opinion. Like, yeah, that's, that's a hard line. Pretty tough to say. Yeah, big time. Particularly when you win back too. It's not just like 
battling to battle. It's like he's winning these battles. Yeah. So he's like, I don't even need to do it anymore. It's like kind of extra boss when, when you think about it. Yeah, like, you really need me to flex? And, what do I have to prove? Exactly. And, and even on ENA, it's not really battle raps. Like, outside of... Star Destroyer kind of is, is a battle song. I'll, 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 I'll say that that's kind of a battle song. Yeah, or Capped or like, ENA Day. Yeah, but it's... ENA Day is more... It's not like other rappers, per se. For sure. ENA Day is more like battling expectations in the industry to a degree. Yeah. Kept is more about, I'm just dope. It's not necessarily battle. It's more like, I get busy. Kind of like 120 is kind of that too. Right? Yeah, yeah. But 120 is more of like a, a our like symbiotic relationship. 120 kind of has that going. But really... Like, Star Destroyer is the one that's really... But even that is, like, done in a metaphor of, like, planets and stars, you know? So, like, when you, when you think about it, is there just a traditional, like, rap battle song on there? Like, not really. Before and After and Blindly Firing yeah. are the most battle rap songs that we've ever done. And those were both on Firstborn. Because I, I would make a strong case that the ones on ENA are, but with with more they're like there's more to them than just that like yeah fusion battle rap fusion <laughs> yeah will. and then by the throat definitely doesn't have any battle rapping on it that's a whole a whole different beast in its own right for sure well before we dive too far into ena let me switch gears for a second because the anti-album from semi-official yeah. is i think some of your best work as a producer you know it's a totally different lane you're doing much more Almost East Coast inspired kind of boom bap, like really sample heavy. It seemed like kind yeah. of a real big pivot from Firstborn. It kind of bridges the gap to what you guys were doing with ENA. But how long did that album take in production? Because, like you were saying, the skill level at Firstborn versus where you were at with that only, I think, two years later, it's a really big leap. But that's not all me. I self basically, he's an avid record collector. Oh. And so he's been collecting records, I don't know how long, but he's really into crate digging. So he approached me about, do you want to make this record with me? And I was like, sure. I've always been a big fan of his. So I was like, yeah. And, and he's going to bring me all these awesome records. So a huge part of that is because he's bringing samples to me where, and that he wants. And he's like, I like this. Okay. Let's flip this. And then I'm technically making it happen. So I wouldn't say I made that record. I would say we made that record together. Even though I technically did everything, technically, yeah. he still brought the sound and had a strong idea of what he wanted. And then I helped get it to that space. And then through that process, we found new things as well, where it was like, oh, this is cool because... You could think, oh, I want to use this, and it just doesn't work. And yeah. then you have to pivot and go a different way. And then some of them, like Crime, that was just a beat I had had. Oh, really? That one I did on my own, and then I-94 I did on my own. And then the intro I did on my own, the scratch intro thing. But the difference between that and ENA is, is definitely him, like his presence and him bringing those samples. And that's why it's more sample-based, because he was like, I want to loop this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, he brought Gray, and it's just like a loop. And like, okay, that one was, a, was hard to loop, though, actually, because I had to chop it in bizarre ways and, and make it all work. But it was cool. Like, that, that record still has a... It's unique. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have done that record. Yeah, I mean, those are some really fun collaborations. I've done that a lot of times where if it exceeds my skill level and I know there's a potential in a sample, I'll bring that to somebody else and be like, yo, what do you think you could do with this and flip this, you know, and have come sure. up with some really cool stuff that way. Going back to ENA, which came out, I think, just six months later, I was blown away when that record came out because with the first track, Reintroducing, you have scratching of the lead vocal within the verse not after the verse in the scratch hook or something yeah, yeah. like that and i know i've said this to you before but to this day i don't understand like what was the vocal phrasing originally how did he leave space for you to do that like how was this track conceived that you guys were like you know what would be cool okay but how do we <laughs> do it right sure well, that's when, right when CDJs were brand spanking new. Yeah. Right? So it was like, oh, 
you can take anything and scratch it immediately. And so the reason why that song works is because we wrote it together. Mm. He literally wrapped part of it, and then we would work out, okay, well, then how would it be? Then we would record him rapping that. We would press a CD of him rapping. Then we put it in the CDJ. I would scratch it, and then we would proceed and go to the next part and the next part. So that would be cool if we still had each one of those CDs. I'm sure those are long gone. Yeah. Like, just had the different burn CDs of each line to the... That would be pretty rad. That's yeah, great. That's how we did it. That's like some Beastie Boys <laughs> stuff where they got to integrate the trade-offs within each line, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like to have to stop and like burn a CD. That was <laughs> pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, like, man. Okay, and then put it in. And like, it was cool. Though. Like that's, that's definitely one of the cooler things I think we've done because it's so different sounding than really most things that are out there. It's, yeah, it's I mean, bizarre. that's... And the beat, too. It's like, I was pretty pumped on that beat because it's, it's like, super simple. Yeah. It's just that this is the kick, the snare, and that, like, that like click. But then it's got that, like, bass line that's, like, ex- absurdly complicated yeah. for one bar. You yep. know, one bar, it's just like, here's where all your notes are, and now it's back to nothing. And I thought that that created a really cool contrast. And then I thought that having it that sparse was really smart because then it really emphasized... I'm I'm scratching his voice. You know, yeah. there wasn't any other melodies or anything else. You only were focusing on that's what was happening. But then you were still satisfied, like, when that one bar came in with all the notes to give it enough of a musical, just to get, to get the notes in the song. So I really like that. Plus, I really enjoyed, as a huge Tribe Called Quest fan, like, Midnight Marauders and Lower yeah. Theory were really, really big e- as far as me a- falling in love with hip-hop. E- a- so having the EA, having me being able to put the E and A from those records, or I guess that would be just from Midnight Marauders, but getting to put that in there, I was really happy to be able to put that in there. I was like, this is probably the best E and A I could have found. Like, oh, yeah. from Midnight Marauders, like, what's better than that? Like, it, one, it sounds amazing. And then anybody who knows where it's from, oh yeah, it's just like an instant, like ah, that's dope. You know what I mean? So it just lays down the gauntlet. I mean, I was in high school when that came out, and I remember, you know, I'd be driving around, and I just always had that CD in the car. And so if I had a friend come in and we're going someplace, I'd be like, oh man, let me put this on. You've never heard anyone do this before, you know? Like, and on a certain level, you said CDJs were so new, and it's true, but it was kind of history, like. Have you heard people do that prior to you? Because I haven't. I don't think so. I mean, but that doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but I haven't heard yeah, it. I haven't that. either. Like, and I think that one of the reasons probably is, you know, unfortunately, DJ and MC continuity and like collaboration is kind of rare. Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the reasons, you know, if... Maybe Glue has done it somewhere. Like, that's one of the only groups I know that really integrate the DJ within their group. I don't think they ever did that, though. But that would be, like, the first group I would think off the top of my head that may have. Funny enough, I did, like, a very simplified version of that on a Gym Class Heroes song. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm friends with Travi, and he had this song about... I don't really remember exactly what it was, but, but I, I wound up scratching his voice during the song. It was more like just like a really cool glitch effect. Yeah. As opposed to like me and Mike's really was boom, boom, boom. But that's because we wrote it together. Whereas with that song, he had left me some space. And it sounds really cool. It, it actually is dope. But it's not the same, obviously. Yeah. But I guess that's, you know, that's the only thing I can think about, but I did it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've got to respect your time here. I'm going to move forward here to By the Throat. This record is obviously you know, a big twist, a curveball in a way. In what you were saying about working with iSelf, was this a more collaborative record in terms of production? Because it definitely also shares some similarities to the changes that Mike was making in, you know, his Crush Kill stuff at the time. And yeah, I'm just curious, like how you guys arrived at that sound, because it's a very Absolutely. unique sounding album and it's, and it's super melodic. Absolutely. The by the throat thing is actually pretty cool. So Mike and I had broken up for a little while. Yeah. But we were still friends. So it wasn't like, we, it didn't erode, you know, we just stopped making music together. So we got offered to do a show, this festival, this two-day festival. One of the days was Naughty by Nature. 
Wow. One of the days was, was us, right, at First Avenue. And it was, it was a lot of money. And like I said, we were still friends. So it was like, let's just do this. Why not, right? Yeah. So we do that. He comes over to rehearse. And I forget which one of us said maybe we should try something new. Or I, I don't remember exactly how that happened. Mm-hmm. But it did. And I had this one beat because I was really focusing on turntablism at the time. Yeah. But I had this one beat that I had tried to give to Blueprint at one point, And I tried to give to Sage at one point. But this was before at least I knew I had to send shit through the Internet. Right. Like I yeah. wasn't on that level yet. So for whatever reason, I don't remember, but I was unable to give it to either of those two people who I had discussed giving the beat to. Yeah. And so I still had this beat that I was like, this is like the one beat that I really like because I've just been doing scratching. And that beat wound up being Burn Fetish. So I played him the beat because Burn Fetish was a Carbon Carousel song. And so he just started spitting that verse over that beat. Okay. And we and we both were like, oh, this sounds, this sounds pretty good. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so we did that at the show and everybody was, was really into it. And so... That's really why we decided to make the next record because it just naturally happened, which is kind of perfect because that's how we became a group. It just kind of happened. But it's it's kind of funny to me because two different times that beat should have been somebody else's. Yeah. And so I'm not like a meant to be guy, but then things happen like that where you're like, well, maybe though, right? Yeah. So, and the thing is, it works so because Mikey always wrote to beat. He's, yeah. He wasn't really one of those guys that would. I'm sure he did it at times, but it was always more, here's the beat, I'm going to write to the beat so it specifically matched emotion, cadence, etc. That's why it works, right? Yeah. Plus, I think that, I think I'll go out on a limb here and say he liked getting the beats so he could explore those beats. He mm-hmm. didn't want to have, he enjoyed that process. But that's why it's so amazing how good Burn Fetish sounds because it works perfectly. Like almost in spite of that. Of, yeah. That's one of my favorite ENA songs. Like, oh yeah. I, I still play that at my shows. Like burn fetish is one of the songs I will always play because it just works. So it's, it's interesting that it, it was already previously existing. So to answer your question though, outside, I guess of that one, uh-huh. once we realized that we wanted to do more stuff together again, I had heard his rock band stuff, the carbon carousel. And I liked it. I yeah. thought it was dope. But it obviously I wasn't going to do that. Like that was that. So, yeah. But I knew how deep he was into rock. And, and I loved rock. Like I grew up listening to Metallica, Alice in Chains, Nirvana. Like I loved rock music as well. So it wasn't some crazy stretch for me to use guitars. You know, like yeah. I, I enjoyed that sound too. So ultimately though, I made that sound thinking about Carbon Carousel like okay so how do i take this energy that he likes but make it ena and that will be our next sound yeah and when i started making all the beats that was what i was envisioning and then i went to his house and i played him all the stuff and then we picked the ones that we liked because he had there were ones that he didn't like that he was like no and like i said to you before there was never any weirdness it was like which ones do you like which ones don't you like yeah pick the ones that he liked and then he took them and then he did all proceeded to add to them like a smile would be a good one. Like mm-hmm. he added the guitar over the top. I, I think that one is the one he really shined on. Like he, that guitar add over the top brings it way to the next level. And he added like the little drum roll that gives it oh. a little bit of a syncopation to it. But then on the flip side to talk about how collaborative him and I were. So he added all of that. But then he was really open to me to dictating how cadence should be. Oh. So the reason why Smile goes, he's just rapping simple. And then on that fourth bar, it's like bouncy. Mm-hmm. I was like, I want to hear that. That's how you should do the verse. And nice. he was like, okay, I'll do that. Same thing with like on Now, where it's like, free, us that we can see. You know, that very last chant. Yeah. That was me. I was like, do this chant. And like, fill in the words, whatever you want. But I was like, this is the rhythm that it should be. So we just, yeah, we just, we, it really was, it was so collaborative. It really, it really, really was nice. And again, no ego. So here's another example of just, we were about how good can it be? Yeah. So 
on by the throat I had the drums. That whole sample, more or less, I probably shouldn't say this, but whatever I'm going to say, <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a Death Wish sample yeah. from the movie Death Wish, the soundtrack. And those drums are like super pitched low. And there was a sample in there that I cut and, I, and it had that, that real deep emotion, but this kind of that simple up top low, like boom, boom, right? And so it had that feel to it. And I, and I really liked it. Like it was, it was super dope. And then when I came back to his house and he played me what Jeremy had done. Jeremy Oldesocker. From Carbon Carousel. And it was, it was funny because that's it. just keep harping on this. But again, we both had to agree. Yeah. Right. So if one of us was like, no, then it was then we wouldn't use it. So he's playing it for me. And, and somewhere inside, he was like, I hope we get to use it. I hope we get to use it. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> so I'm listening to it because, again, he took out my whole sample shop, only kept the drums took out all the sample chops but he kept the feeling and it was so funny because when i when i heard it i mean i don't even know how many seconds in but i was like oh we're using that yeah like, we're using that. <laughs> like, there's, there's no way we're not using that and then he just started laughing and he was just like yes because i think he was concerned that i might have wanted to keep it the chops because the chops did sound good but i mean jeremy's that i mean that guitar oh yeah I mean, he's great that shit is massive and then he added the the Moog. It's just, it sounds so good. So yeah, that record really was collaborative in that way, where it was it was a lot more give and take. Again, all the beats were present, but then he would add, and then I would be like, yes, no, maybe we'll do this. And then also on um, some of them were kind of built from the ground up because actually this story was built from the ground up. Really, because I had that guitar sample that the controller won this Vestex turntable that had the pitch where you could change the yeah. pitches. And if I remember correctly, I, I had that rift and I think we made that more or less together at his studio from the ground up. And then, you know what? We did do a, one song that was a little bit out of time because on um, Spin Cycle, mm -hmm. that's a five bar loop. Yeah. So there, there was one that we, I did get one weird one with him with that. So that's cool. Last thing on By the Throat, I want to talk about the turntable style because when I met you guys, the first thing that we really talked about, me and Mike, was production. And he was asking me about the live band, how we worked. And he's like, oh, man, I just did the same thing. Like, I just one-taked all the vocals on this record because I didn't want to overproduce it. You know, he's like, I just lit a candle, in one day, bottle of wine. Yeah, he's like, I just, I just ran through everything and just kept it, try to get it to feel live. And your approach on that record feels almost more guitar solo-y, it's more melodic, it's a little more chaotic or noisy. Was that something you guys approached together of like, you know what, let's strip down a little bit, let's not be so over the top with our you know patterns let's just see what happens kind of i mean was there a looser structure in your mind as well i don't think either of us really thought as technical about it as people you may think yeah we more were just like let's do something that's tight you know what I mean? yeah and so if it wound up being simpler it was simpler if it was more complicated it was more complicated I do think on some level, if there was a conscious thing, there was the level of scratching like more guitar sounds to... to yeah. Be, well, and, and, I'll, and I'll throw this back. The whole sound of the record was a conscious thing. Yeah. Like I said, I was like, I'm going to bridge ENA and Carbon Carousel, and that's the sound we're going to go with. All these other things you're talking about where it's like, I don't necessarily think that they were strategized as much. Sure, but I mean, um, you're not you're not sampling vocal chops and things like that on this record because it didn't make sense. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. It's like, I mean, I guess on Spin Cycle, I could have been scratching somebody saying spinning or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it made a lot more sense to scratch guitar notes. Yeah, to go with the guitars, you know. And and I think too, though, that was a natural progression of because I had had that controller one. I was already thinking more in terms of scratching melodically. Yeah. Like that was exciting at the time. So I think the two things just merged realistically in a natural way. Yeah. I really just have one more follow-up to that. You and I met on that tour. I don't know how much you remember, but it was pretty insane for us just in that, you know, I strike up this conversation with Mike. Well, he introduced himself to me. We're talking for a while. I give him a CD 
we walk into the main room before doors open, and you and Gabe, Webb the Free Range Human, are chatting as well. Mike gives you our CD, and I've never seen anybody do something like this. You opened it, you walked up on stage, put on your headphones. <laughs> as the doors are opening and people are coming in, you're sitting on stage with low lighting, listening to our CD after talking to this dude about his beat making process that you had never met before. Do you remember that at all? I do, yeah. It was a good night. It was at Wow Hall, right? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. And, you know, being that night that you invited him maybe an hour later to remix the record, and, and I remember you popping your head in the green room saying to Mike, hey, do you still have the acapellas? I want you to send them to Gabe. And I was like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you remember about that conversation with him and, and what stood out as like, wow, I, I see something cool? Because, I mean, obviously you meet musicians every night i mean on on the road like you think so yeah i don't know i mean i think it's probably a combination of you know, it's a long time ago obviously i don't yeah remember remember it was a good conversation i remember having a, a good conversation with him and i think that i was in a good mood you yeah. know what i mean so it was like when those two things intersect then those type of things happen you know what i mean yeah because I think it required both for me to be in that space. And yeah, I just think it was a, it was an interesting night though. I think, I think too, it's like, it was unique. I, I haven't done that since in, in that way. So I just yeah. think it was a cool stars aligned kind of situation is what I would say. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, that re-inspired us because at the time we were, we both came out of projects that we were, we thought we're going to take us further and, and didn't. And so that was kind of our, that was like our fuck it band. We really didn't care about that project at all. Uh, we were just fucking around. And then, you know, when you guys that's came. That's probably why it was good, though, because once you eliminate ulterior motives, you yeah. guys were just having fun, you know, yeah. and that's probably why it works because. At the end of the day, I think, you know, when you're creating art on any level, you're tapping into playing and having fun. It's yeah. like that has to be attached to that. No matter how deep you're going, I feel like on some level it's still you're still playing to a degree, at least a lot of the time. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say it. that's the blanket of all art creation. For sure. But yeah. I think a, a lot of times I think that that is what it is. I know for me personally. I have a, a mantra that I use frequently, which is called follow the fun. And so when I'm putting my sets together or when I'm creating, if I'm stuck, if that's what it is, follow the fun. What feels fun, that's probably what's going to be right. Yeah. Because inherently, I'm always trying to make it technical and wild and, and gnarly and like that can dampen the fun. And then it just turns into, I don't know, something that's not enjoyable to listen to. So I think one of the reasons why that project probably worked for you guys was specifically because you didn't have attachments to it outside of just having fun. Yeah, absolutely. Not a lot of people probably know about that project, but if you go to the Michael Larson Bandcamp, you can hear the By the Throat remixes, which obviously overseen by you personally. You know, Mike had redone this story. Yeah, you know, right, that's the one I really remember. Right before we lost him. Yeah, yeah and that, that was amazing, man, him coming with that live energy. Well, because also Webb sampled the beat. He took the instrumental and changed it, and then Mike took his lyrics and changed it. So it was cool. It was a cool process. Yeah, yeah. And I remember seeing you only a year or two later out there with Atmosphere. It was my first time seeing you solo. How much had you done as a solo artist up until that point? Not much at all. That's one of the reasons it's taken me so long to come out with this new album. Yeah. Because when Mikey had passed, I wasn't prepared to perform shows by myself. I was always in a group setting. I mean, I did DJ sets early, early on when I was young. Yeah. But that was nothing that I could tour nationally. That was just me learning how to DJ or whatnot. So the years preceding Mikey's passing was primarily figuring out how can I perform by myself 
purely as a job. Like it was just a survival thing. Like I need to be able to do shows to make money yeah. for myself and my family. So I wasn't able to create new music because I had to make sure my show was good enough so I could get booked. And that was the first couple years of that. And I got to a space where I felt really good about my live show and things were going well, but I wasn't progressing as far as I had wanted to be. Mm-hmm. People want to hear my beats. They want to hear my scratch and they want to hear my original music. Totally. And so I opened up Ableton and I actually labeled the session, the first step, because it was the first step towards making the record, nice. which I felt was my next the thing that I had to do to get back to where I want to go and, and beyond. And funny enough, that actually is the first step on Phonograph <laughs> Phoenix. Like, it was the first song, the first step, and it wind up making the record as the first song on my record, which blows my fucking mind because, I mean, I worked on that thing over the course of, I think, seven years yeah. from beginning to end. Like, I had to constantly stop and start, but... And it took me a long, long time to figure out how to do it by myself. Like many times I thought about just quitting and, and getting vocalists. Yeah. Because filling up all that space was way more difficult than I anticipated it being. Plus no samples, writing all the music myself. It was it took a long fucking time. But I knew that if I went through that process, the next one wouldn't take as much time. Like a huge amount of that time was only figuring out how to do it. Yeah. But it still blows my mind that the first step actually is the first step. Yeah, that's pretty perfect. When I decided I was going to make my new record, that song is it. (laughs) Out of all the songs I made that didn't make it, that one is the first one and it is the first step. And that's crazy to me. And I do want to talk about that song in particular, but I want to talk about this period a little bit too because I remember when we did the tour for the documentary in uh, 2016, I mean, obviously, I'm sure a lot of mixed feelings because of, you know, you're having to watch that damn footage every night and and hear those songs every night. But those fans were the most gracious, supportive, loving fans. Was that at all cathartic to go out there and play for those particular crowds who were like really, really bought in and and seeing what ENA still meant to people over that time? Yeah, yeah, of course. But I I guess I feel that way. It might have been turned up more because of the documentary, but I feel that way every time I play. Yeah. Like there's always a a lot of ENA fans there. So it wasn't that different than how my normal shows are, to be completely honest. Sans playing the movie every night, which was awesome, but also difficult, as you had previously said. There was a lot of emotion involved in that. But... As far as the love from the crowd, it, it's always like that. There's always going to be ENA fans who are always ride or die. I mean, when I drop in Burn Fetish or Now or Smile, you know, yeah. it goes it goes way up. Yeah, and it's really awesome. And on that tour was the first time that Terrell and I got to hear some of these new songs. Sure, when and, I was working on them. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. beginning phases or whatnot. The thing that stood out to me most is that I really hadn't heard, kind of like you alluded to here, that you are communicating theme throughout the record without a vocalist. And I hadn't quite heard anyone do it in such an effective way where you'll only use, I mean, what, maybe three lines at most through a whole song, you know? There are actually a lot of samples on each song. It's just that they all pertain to the same theme yeah so it feels like it's cohesive you know one day i'm gonna go through and i'm gonna listen to because what a previous interview i did a little while ago was talking about the amount of samples Mm -hmm. and i'm curious actually to see how many i actually did scratch on each song yeah because in the in this previous interview i said and i was kind of exaggerating to a degree but i was like 30 or 40 a song but then i also started thinking like how many actually is it? Yeah. And and someday I'm going to go and listen to all the songs and find out how many it is. And I think actually though, one of the reasons why I thought it was so many is because I scratched an absurd amount of samples for each song. 
but they all didn't make the song. Yeah. Yeah. The process was a shit ton, but then I picked the best ones and placed them. But even with the best ones, it's still a lot. Like some there's, there's less, some songs are less, some are more. The first step has a lot of them in it. Waves, not so much because waves is just kind of more of a feeling. Yeah. But that still has a good amount. And yeah, it'd be interesting to see the count one day. One bored afternoon, I'm just going to go, and I'm going to go, and I'm just going to tally them up and see, how many different scrap samples did I use? Yeah, you should do a, a lyrical breakdown or something for us. But that first song, the, the first step, so it opens with these fat, like, firstborn drums, but the first sound you hear is that, that sample out of the bottomless pit. It's just so perfect. Like, did that just fucking hit you? Or were you, like, digging and digging to find, like, the right thing? This is a long time ago, but I know that, because I know it still hits me to the level of where, like, I'm like, that shit is perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's, like, out of the bottomless, and then then it hits with the kick, and it's just, like, it works perfectly. So I don't fully recall finding it, how I felt when I found that. But knowing how I still feel about it, I can guarantee I was like, oh, yeah, this this is going to work. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I also just like the way, I mean, you mentioned where it hits. If I'm remembering it correctly, your timing of of that line is used differently than the original in the way that it lands on that final kick. Honestly, I don't know. It it might. I'm not sure. I can't say one way or the other, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Ultimately, whenever I use a sample or a vocal sample, it's bound to change more than likely on some level. Yeah. That one works really good. It really sets the tone of the album. Like, yeah. with a title called Phonograph Phoenix, you know, about me coming back, having that be just the first line, like, there's no confusion. You know, right when you press play, it's like, this is what we're in for. Yeah. And, and I like that. I think in some ways this is probably your most autobiographical album because you're not having easily is. someone else speak for you this time. Uh, it easily is because it's, as much as Mike and I's records, I poured myself into them, it's still a collaboration. And with him being a vocalist and being a freaking amazing vocalist, the Ian Day records are... 50-50 at best, if not more Mikey. You yeah. know what I mean? Realistically. So this record is all me. So of course, yeah, this record has more of me because it's just me. Yeah, It has to be. You know what I mean? I liken this a little bit to Blueprint's album, Adventures in Counterculture, where he was like, mm-hmm. all right, I'm done sampling. I've got to figure out how I'm going to play all this shit. And sing. He's singing, yeah. too, which is ill. Yeah. A new challenge. What did that process look like for you? I mean, did you have any sort of any specific inspiration that you took of like, oh, you know, I see X, Y, and Z are playing their own parts like this makes me want to do that. Or was that just kind of out of necessity of like, all right, if I'm going to start dropping shit as a solo artist, I need to watch out for samples and copyrights. And There's a handful of things. So one, when I decided to do this, and do it completely sololy. One of the reasons was because I was like, at worst, I'll be better. Because it's such a challenge that if I can overcome this challenge, I'll be a better musician no matter what, yeah. having to figure out how to write everything. So that was really appealing to me. Um, the fact that Ableton came out with the Ableton push, which it was brand new at the time, that had the feature where you could make all the pads be in the correct key. Oh, because I'm not musically trained at all. So that made me think I'll at least know theoretically it's correct, because when I used to try to play on piano, I could land some things. But a lot of the times what would wind up happening is I'd be like, there's something wrong and I don't know what it is. And it would be like one note without a key or something. But I, I couldn't figure it out. And it was frustrating and exceptionally time consuming. Whereas when the Ableton push came out, and I could just know everything was correct theoretically. It just came down to does it sound good? Yeah. Because I'm not hitting the wrong notes. That was another reason why I was like, okay, hey, this might be possible. And that was kind of at the very beginning phase. And then researching and learning more about theory and stuff, that it grew from that. 
Mm-hmm. But I know that that specifically was one of the reasons I thought that it was even possible to not use samples. Another was because VSTs sound good now. Yeah. To me, they didn't sound good for years and years and years, but, but they do sound good now. Two, I knew that I was going to get it mixed and mastered super properly so that it would sound good too, which can mask kind of the computer beat sound if you're putting it through real gear, real board, real analog stuff to give it more of a... Um, yeah, more organic feel. Yeah. At this point, it's been about 12 years since By the Throat. Because, I mean, I heard what sounded like basically finished songs five years ago, and you're still chipping away going like, no, no, they can be better, right? I mean, was there a pressure on yourself? Like, whatever this first drop is, it's got to be awesome because, you know, mm-hmm. it's, oh, yeah. it's a debut for a veteran, you know? <laughs> like, people know you. Yeah, yeah. I'm in a weird middle ground of like, I'm known, but it is a debut. And that's interesting that you say that because I definitely agree with that. So years ago, I was at a place where I was like, I'll quit doing this and I'll do something else. But I was like, I should at least try the hardest that I can before I move on to something else. And so kind of where I'm at is like, if people like this, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. If they don't, I'll do something else. But I was like, I owe it to myself to try as hard as I possibly can. And so that is why it took a long, long time, because I was like, it's a big deal. There's more weight on this than just a regular record. So I really wanted to make sure it was awesome. But that said, that's just how I felt about all the ENA records, too. Like, I never don't want to do my best either. Yeah. But I think maybe I part of the reason I took all the extra steps was because of the extra weight that was put on on this, given all of the circumstances. So, yeah, I did my best. It's, it's kind of silly to say in a way. That's kind of cliche, maybe, or after school specially, but like, <laughs> I did my best. That's all you can do, and, and I hope that people like it. But I can't think of anything else I could have done better. You know, like, after the fact, there's little things where I'm like, oh, I would turn that up or that down, or yeah. I may have changed that, but... But more or less, it's pretty much exactly the best I could make it be. And, you know, what else can you ask for? That's all, that's all I can do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I always have that kind of approach when I release a record, at this age anyway, that if this is the last thing that I ever drop, right? You know, and so I kind of put that of like, all right, we've got to meet this level if sure. I'm, I'm going to be satisfied to put this out, you know? You did put on a tribute to michael using some of his voice the uh, skydiver black hole at the center of our galaxy we're still suffering we're still aching mm-hmm. and i believe there's another one from burn fetish in there but um it's a couple in there yeah yeah i'm sure that was an important thing to acknowledge him with this record do you remember anything about that process absolutely because that was the last song that i made mm. because i knew how emotionally taxing it was going to be but I knew I had to do it. There, there was no way I couldn't have a song honoring Mike on my record. Like, yeah. there's no way I could not do that. So it was, it was tough. I didn't want to go through it because I knew how tough it was going to be. So I started with the guitar patch, which is a really nice patch. Case in point, where I talk about VSTs, like yeah. to me, that just sounds like a dope guitar. It does. Like, it's just a VST, but it's not quantized. So I think that gives it. And, it, and the velocity sensitive, so it feels like it has more of an organic feel to it. Yeah. I knew that, and I don't want to get emotional here, but when I wrote the original rift, I was like, if I don't cry when I write the rift for this song, it's not good enough. Yeah. Like, I have to hit that level of emotion. I have to tap into that. Yeah. So I wrote that guitar line, which I did cry while I was writing. And I was like, okay, I got it. Like, that's going to work. And then I had the drums. But it was just so brutally depressing. Yeah. Because it was just the guitar and the drums. And I was like, I don't want to have that. That just doesn't feel like it's helping anybody. Yeah. That may, may be me because it's giving me some kind of release. But for the listeners, I was like, I just didn't want it to be that depressing. Mm-hmm. So I was like, how can I turn this and make it uplifting as well? So it starts with the line from Skydiver. Yeah which is Black Hole at Center of Our Galaxy, Worst of Suffering, Worst of Aching, which is us, right? All of the friends, family, fans, 
we miss Mike still. Yeah. Then it goes to the, the middle, which is shoot a hole in the sky, rip it open, climb inside. And, and that's where the guitar gets bright and uplifting. And that's like Mike elevating to the next plane or whatnot, or, yeah. or his memory or the, the positivity of, of him. And then it drops back down into where I currently am at, which is I try to maintain. I day by day, I keep moving forward. Yeah. And so the best that I could using scratch sounds and, and instruments, I tried to, at least on a small level, tell the journey. I'm pretty proud of that song. I, I think, again, I, it was the best that I could do. It's very effective. I don't know how else I could have done that better. It's very effective. Like it? it really is, yeah. Um, awesome. it, it hits every time. To wrap this up here, I wanted to ask a question in terms of of runtime, because a trend that I've noticed as I went through each one of these albums that we've talked about here is that each one is shorter than the last one. <laughs> sure, sure. And coming from punk rock, I like that because I always feel... The immediacy, right? I want it to be to the point. I don't want an 8 or 16 bar intro. You know, I want the guy to start rapping, right? And so there's a quality specifically about this one and by the throat where they're just very direct approaches that leave you wanting more. Is that a conscious decision on your part or is it just sort of like when it feels like it's done, it's done? I think it's a little of both because... And I've, I've always been this way ever since Firstborn, and then it's gotten more amplified throughout the years of, I don't want to have songs that are redundant. Yeah. So I, I'm always expressing different sounds, different keys, different BPMs. So each sound and each song has its own energy. And every song is my favorite song. That's yeah. why it made I have other songs that didn't make that record that I could put out, but... I didn't like them. I didn't cherish them like I like all, excuse me, like that I love all these songs. Like yeah. every song on there, I love. That's why they're on there. So rather than have the record longer, but with the song that's not quite as good as those eight, that's like, why? Like, and you know, what? I'm going to just make it simple. Quality over quantity. Yeah. I, that's how I ride. Like, I don't even really need to elaborate anymore. Quality over quantity, dude. Every day, every day. I'm with you there. For me, I know when an album's done based on the sequencing. Because if I have a batch of songs and I'm kind of aligning, okay, I know I want to start with this, I want to close with this, and you're kind of figuring out, okay, which flows in and out of each other really well, which contrasts and complements, right? You can sort of feel like, uh, this, these pieces might need some more glue there might need to be something or you, you know? need a, a more energetic song or you yeah. need a sadder song yeah, absolutely but see this is one of the things though about when i and this goes back again to the ea days i don't make songs and complete them i work on the whole record at the same time so it's like i'll have 60 percent of this song 70 percent of that song 80 percent of that song because i'm trying to look at it as a whole thing and yeah. then kind of what you're talking about, the sequencing, once I get the sequencing where I'm like, okay, I have enough of all the feelings that I want, enough of all the BPMs and everything that I want, where it becomes one cohesive thing, yeah. then I go in and finish it all. Because to me, it's not a song, a song, a song. It's one song. Yeah. And that's another reason why the record isn't really that long, quote unquote, because I, I thought about it in terms of vinyl. Like that mm -hmm. record actually is two sides. It's specific. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the sequencing of each side is very specific to where when you put the needle on, it has an intro feel to it. It has a middle feel to it. It has a definitive ending feel to it. And then even on the first side of Phonograph Phoenix, it has an end to it, but it also has like a, a lead in, like you want the next thing to happen. So it's one piece. It's, it's a painting. It's one painting. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like... It's one painting. It's all got to work together. You have this part, you have this part, you have this part. But when you look at the whole thing, it all needs to make sense. So I'm not just going to add more colors just to add more colors <laughs> yeah. if it doesn't help the painting. Do you, you know what I mean? And also, it's like there's so much media to consume. Yep. No filler. One of the things I love about my record is it's just like, this is what I got. <laughs> I'm not like, it's not long winded. You know what I mean? It's like, 
I already trimmed all the fat for you guys as listeners. Like, yeah. This is what I got. Yeah. And if you if you think it's kind of short, okay, I guess. But I've never had anybody say to me, except when they consciously realize mm-hmm. that it technically was short, nobody said it feels short because they listen to it from beginning to end and it feels complete to them as a piece of art. And that's what I want. Like, if it could be longer, you know, if I could do that at some point for 50 minutes, that would be awesome. But I don't foresee that happening anytime soon. <laughs> like, yeah. the thought of making 50 minutes of music like that, I just think it would take me, it'd take me a long time. And then at that point, I might not even be into it anymore. Like, that's the thing is like, you have to catch your inspiration when you have it because, you know, hopefully you're always moving on and growing. So, the songs need to match the other songs in, yep. in the space you're at. If you want to make some crazy long album and you're taking that amount of time with each song, you're risk, running the risk of the, the later songs not balancing out with the first songs, and then you don't have a cohesive sound as an end product. And, and then I'll end with this, too, as far as having a shorter record not really meaning anything to me. is It's either, in today's day and age, it's either digital or vinyl. For the most part, right? And if it's digital, it's just people are picking the song they like. And it's just going on a playlist. So it doesn't even matter. That's why I was like, let me have eight singles. That's Mm -hmm. what I was talking about. Each song. I love each song. So it's like, to me, in its own way, it's eight. Even though I know they're not singles, you know what I mean? Like, whatever that term carries. They have the strength of singles to me. So it's eight songs individually stand on their own. Although stronger together. Or it's vinyl, where it's like you put it on, and like you don't want too many songs on vinyl because then the fidelity starts to degrade yeah. if it starts getting too long. And then it was like four on each side. I just, I, I really like the balance of it. And like I said, when people who are, are watching this are listening to the record, like it's meant side A, side B. Like I thought about it in vinyl terms of like the listening experience, putting that record on. And I think. Being a vinyl DJ, I had a uh, connection to that that I wanted to keep going with that. Because putting on a good record, a good vinyl record, that's an awesome experience. And I'm not detracting from because digital has its own amazingness. Like I say, like you could have your own playlist, you could have a million songs, like there's pros to it. You know what vinyl's like? Vinyl's like riding a horse. <laughs> it's like, you know what I mean? Like, of course, cars, like we're not going to just not drive cars anymore like cars are super convenient if they make sense but like riding a horse there's there's a romance to it yeah and it's it will never not be amazing and special in its own way i love that you put that much thought into it because it it really translates for me and and again being so short and to the point the first time i listened to the full thing I immediately wanted to listen to it again. And that was that was the same thing that happened to me with By the Throat, is that when yes. the last song played out, I was like, wow, it's over? And then it looped, and I was not mad. I was, I was like actually really happy to hear it a second time. And I would so much rather me choose to listen to it again than me look at my watch and go, when is this over? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Or you have songs where you're like, damn, track three is just a worse version of track eight. Yeah. Like you're making songs that are too similar to one another. Mm-hmm. Whereas if every song is unique on its own and stands on its own, you will feel fulfilled. That's really what it all comes down to is, is each song having enough to be unique that you don't feel the need. Like oh, I need more. If you're making art, it's like, I feel like you have to find a balance between having a concept and a vision, but also being open to where the best path leads you. You know what I mean? And recognizing that path. Like, dude, when I started making any of those songs on there, they all went a new space. You know, yeah. I had something going and I was like, okay, it's gonna be, and then it went somewhere else, you know? And then you have to be willing to go, well, does this sound better than my initial thing that I wanted to do? And if it's, and if it's yes, then it's like, you gotta be open to that and just go on that journey. Well, I'm really excited for you. It's a great sounding record. And again, just the, you mentioned the title, Phonograph Phoenix. It really just embodies this, this comeback and everything that you've been through. And congratulations, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
All right, that is our show. Huge thanks to Abilities for taking the time. He was actually one of the very first guests I ever asked to be on this show, and he said yes, but when the record is done. So I've really been waiting years for this, and it was a pleasure. If you want to support the show, take a screenshot, post that to your stories. You can follow me on Instagram at Sammy Warmhands. You can go to patreon.com slash batfanattic. That's my other podcast, and it will support me here as well. I'm going to leave you with a song from Phonograph Phoenix. This is DJ Abilities. Mission. Superstition, Gift of Gab. My name is Sammy Warmhands, and these are just a few of the iconic voices featured on my double album, Figures of Speech, available now at take92.com and strangefamous.com. Do you miss live music and going on tour? Check out my new book, How to Ruin Your Life, The Daily Grind of a DIY Tour. The book chronicles nearly a decade of underground tours with artists like DJ Abilities and Christoph Crane. With a foreword by Carnage the Executioner, this book is a must-have for rap fans who want to peek behind the scenes. The book is available now at Take92.com and StrangeFamous.com. For even more behind-the-scenes content, subscribe to the Take92 podcast for interviews with artists from Sage Francis to Jello Biafra. This is Sammy Warmhands from Crush Kill Recordings and Take92 Music.